Section 8 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 8, Law and the South Sea Bubble. The finances of France were in so bad a state that it is not wonderful that statesmen should have seized on almost any proposals for improving them. A Scotchman named John Law, exiled from his country because of his share in a duel, who had made a fortune by gambling, proposed to the regent to relieve the pressure by means of paper money. The principles of political economy were not yet understood, and it was not seen that paper money is only of value where it represents wealth and that wealth consists of the sum of things necessary, useful, and agreeable, possessing an exchange value. Though convertible paper money may usefully be made to represent wealth, an inconvertible paper currency is not wealth. Yet the idea that it is seems to have a fascination of its own and to be reproduced from time to time in each succeeding generation. Law's Bank was established as a private bank in 1716, but was so successful that in a couple of years it was converted by the regent into a royal bank. Had no further steps been taken, it is possible that little mischief might have accrued, but the bank began to speculate. There was joined to it a company called the Mississippi Company for trading with the French colony of Louisiana, now one of the United States. It was believed that the profits of this trade would be enormous, and law represented that if the country obtained a monopoly, the profits should be used to wipe out the whole national debt of France. A rush was made for the shares of the company, which consequently rose in value, until they are said to have reached forty times their original value. The shares were only to be purchased with the paper money of the bank. This created for a time a demand for the bank's notes. It seemed as if an era of general prosperity had dawned, and the street in which the office of the bank stood was crowded from morning until night. The wildest excitement prevailed in all ranks of society. Money easily won was quickly and lavishly spent, often in gross debauchery. The gambling spirit pervaded the whole nation for a couple of years, at the end of which time the inevitable reaction followed upon the splendid vision of prosperity. Law, it is said, had issued banknotes for eighty times the value of all the coin in France. But from the Mississippi Company no profits accrued. At length a panic set in. The nominal value of its shares came down almost as quickly as it had gone up. Within a few months from the time when all, or almost all, were satisfied with the new prosperity, Law fled from the country. Had he not first concealed himself and then escaped, he would have been torn in pieces. He died a few years afterwards in Venice, in the utmost poverty. The greatest distress was felt throughout the whole of France, for almost everyone had joined in the general mania for speculation. The example of France was infectious. England caught the infection in what is known as the South Sea Bubble. We can see, however, that the intercourse between the two nations must then have been slow, for Law's scheme was already discredited and the French bubble had broken 
before the English bubble had reached its full dimensions. The mischief in England ran its course in a much shorter time altogether, about six months. The South Sea Company had been established some time previously. It had not as yet done much of its legitimate business, trading with the Spanish coasts of America. Indeed, it may be added that to this it never did attend. But it was a powerful corporation and was considered the rival of the Bank of England. A proposal came from the company that it should buy up the national debt. It was universally thought that the South Sea Company would be very successful in its trading ventures and that the profits would enable it in some strange way to extinguish the debt. In the month of April 1719, a bill was passed through both Houses of Parliament giving all the powers required. There was more opposition in the Lords than in the Commons. In the latter, the bill had been proposed by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. On the passing of the South Sea Act, stock rose from 130 to 1,000. This example proved very contagious, and a great many companies were started, some for the most ludicrous objects. Historians have given lists of these objects, and it is worthwhile to mention some in order to show the lengths to which human folly will sometimes go. Companies were to be established with the following objects. Wrecks to be fished for on the Irish coast, to make salt water fresh, for extracting silver from lead, for transmuting quicksilver into a malleable metal, for importing a number of large jackasses from Spain, for trading in human hair, a wheel for perpetual motion. The most extravagant proposal of all was for an undertaking which hereafter shall be revealed. Each subscriber was to pay two guineas. It is said that a thousand subscribed in a single morning, and then the projector decamped. This last story, inconceivable at any ordinary time, shows the excited state of mind of the many gamblers. The fall was even more prompt in London than in Paris. A great many families were reduced to beggary. Walpole, who had not been in office when the South Sea Act was passed, but as a member had opposed it, and who had already earned a reputation as a financier, was called to office. He became Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer, and by the measures that he took, restored public confidence. The difference between the English and the French crash may be shortly summed up. In France, there was only one vortex. The bank and the Mississippi Company had united. In England, the Bank of England always remained a rival and hostile company, so that there was an established corporation to which to turn when the crash came. Moreover, in England, there were a great many little bubbles round about the big bubble. Though many individuals lost largely in their speculations, the nation, as a nation, did not suffer to the same extent as in France. Periods of rash and wild speculation are not uncommon in modern history, but the time of law and of the South Sea bubble is the worst on record. The shock to public morality which this period of speculation produced was greater in France than in England. In the condition of the latter, there was no ground for boasting. Religion was never at a lower ebb. The political world was almost hopelessly corrupt. 
but in France it seemed as if all decency was lost. It was a time of shameless and open profligacy, the regent himself setting the example. It is pleasant, however, to be able to mention a conspicuous instance of goodness. In the year 1720, a plague broke out in the town of Marseille and throughout Provence, which carried off no fewer than 85,000 persons. The horror with which the news was received throughout France was to some extent mitigated by the admirable devotion of the Bishop of Marseille and of certain others who followed his example. A thousand times did he risk his life in helping the smitten, and yet he escaped unhurt. The account of this suggested the problem propounded in the famous couplet of Pope. Why drew Marseille's good bishop purer breath when nature sickened and each gale was death? End of section 8